Uh, good morning. If you could please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. I'll be reading from verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And when he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch after spending time there, He departed and went from one place to the next through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent and competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the ways of God more accurately. And when he wished to come to to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And now let all of God's people say, Amen. Father, we come before you today and we ask that as we come to your word, God, that it would be your word that we understand ourselves to be coming to. Father, help us to resist the temptation to think of these as just words that are about you instead of words that are by you. Help us to recognize that these words have been breathed out by God that these words were recorded by the Apostle Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that they are living, and that they are active, and that they are full of grace, and that they are full of power and full of truth. And so, Father, help the truth to settle into our minds and to be clear to us. And by your Holy Spirit, use your word to continue the work that you have begun in us of transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds. Our God, may the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every week when I dig into God's word in the book of Acts here, I'm so thankful for all of the riches of God that are contained here. It's easy sometimes to just kind of read these stories and skim over the top and say, well, here's another thing that happened, and, and not take the time to dig down and find the gold and the richness that God has packed into His Word here in these stories of His sovereign power and faithfulness as He sustains His people and as He fulfills His promises and as He accomplishes His purposes in this world. Even in the midst of all the godlessness of this world, all the wickedness that characterizes this world in the days that are dark and evil, we can be assured from testimony like this that God is at work. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful even as we see the darkness and the wickedness being expressed in the world in our day, in our time, that God has given us His Word in places like the book of Acts to help us focus on the reality of His faithfulness and His providence every single day in this world. When I watch the news, I'm reminded of how much godlessness there is in this world. I'm reminded about what the Bible says, that the kings of the earth 
rage against God and shake their fists at Him and rage against His Word and suppress it in their unrighteousness. But then when I look away from the news and look to the Word of God, I'm reminded that His Word cannot fail. There's nothing in all of their attempts to suppress it that they can do to keep it from accomplishing its purposes. And in Acts, that truth isn't just proclaimed propositionally, it's proven, it's put on display. God's Word never returns empty. God's Word never returns void. It always accomplishes whatever God purposes for it to accomplish. And there is no power in this world, no power of hell, no scheme of man that can thwart the purposes of God or hinder the power of His Word or stop the spread of the Gospel throughout this world. So I know it's tempting to be glued to the TV all week long. I have been too. Focused on all the bad news in this world. And so let's be thankful for this day that God has made for us to come, for us to gather together and focus our minds and our hearts not on the news but on His Word, not on the bad news but on the good news and to be assured by the Holy Spirit that He sits in the heavens and does whatever He pleases, that He does sovereignly establish nations and rulers and remove them according to His own perfect wisdom and purpose. So as we come to the remainder of Acts chapter 18 this morning, remember where we left off last week. We see Paul now traveling from Corinth, where he was earlier in the chapter, to the city of Ephesus and preaching the gospel there before then embarking on a return voyage that would take him through territory that he traveled through in previous journeys on his way home to Caesarea and to Jerusalem and to Antioch. And as we focus on these verses here at the end of Acts 18 and on the ministry that took place in the city of Ephesus, I'm reminded about the words that Paul would write back to the church that he would establish there in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians that we have in our Bibles. And in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians where later after the events of Acts 18 he writes back to them and exhorts the Christians there and us too by way of the word of God. He exhorts us with these words. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore the word says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then, How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, and making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And the days are still evil, aren't they? And there's plenty of evidence of that all around this world. All of which makes that exhortation all the more critically important for us to look carefully to how we walk, how we live in this world, and to make the best use of the time. The Greek word means to redeem every minute of the time that God has sovereignly given us, provided for us, allowed for us to live our lives in this world. And in these verses here in Acts 18, God reveals to us several characteristics in the life of Paul and in Apollos, that need to mark the lives of the people of God in this world, that need to undergird our lives as we strive to do that, as we strive to walk carefully in this world that is full of darkness, and as we strive to make the best use of our time here. And those qualities that I want to just glean here from these closing verses in Acts 18 with you are these, they are first of all an unflagging devotion to God in our lives. That has to characterize us in this world where there are so many distractions, so many things that compete for our heart's devotion. 
we have to make sure that we are characterized by an unflagging devotion to God. Secondly, a pervasive devotion to the will of God and not our own and not the will of other people, but the will of God. And thirdly, a genuine humility that governs that devotion to God and to His kingdom in this world. A devotion to God, a devotion to His will, and a devotion to humility. Don't just read these verses as, well, now Paul's done and he went to Ephesus for a little while and then he went home and then Apollos taught the word in Ephesus. There's gold buried there in terms of how God worked in these men's lives in order to instill in them a steadfast devotion and humility that enabled them to make the best use of the time that they have in this world. So let's look to God's Word together and dig that gold out. Last week we saw that Paul had spent a long, long season of ministry in the city of Corinth. And here now, over over a year and a half, as much as two years just in the city of Corinth, and here now in verse 18 we read that as that season came to an end, Paul, along with Aquila and Priscilla, you remember them, the faithful Christian tent makers who he'd met there in Corinth, they all left Corinth together, probably because Aquila and Priscilla were helping Paul and funding his journeys. They all left together and they set sail for Syria, which means Paul's heading home. Syria is up way over to the east now of Greece where he's been and up to the north in Israel, up to the north of Jerusalem. He's heading home. He's going to travel east across the sea back to Asia where he's going to stop at Ephesus before, his, before making his way all the way back across the Mediterranean to Caesarea. Then he's going to go visit the church at Jerusalem and eventually make his way back up north from Jerusalem to Syrian Antioch before then leaving again on a third missionary journey all through Asia and Macedonia. Now at the end of verse 18... Luke supplies us with this interesting and and kind of peculiar little detail about Paul's life that's just easy to overlook, but makes us go, well, what's that about? Maybe it's no big deal, or maybe it is, but God put it in here for a reason, didn't he? At Syncrae, Paul cut his hair because he was under a vow. Now, the Holy Spirit usually tells us things for a reason, right? And he's not just letting us know that while Paul was there, he went to the barber shop and got a haircut. Syncrae is the name of the eastern port that served the city of Corinth. You remember it was a unique city because there were two bodies of water surrounding it, and so it had two ports. The eastern port is here in Syncrae, and that's where Paul would have had to set sail from to get back across to Asia. And before getting on the boat, apparently he did. He got a haircut. He had his head shaved. And again, that's more than just an insignificant, incidental little detail that Luke just randomly throws into the narrative here, because Luke says that Paul did that. He had his hair cut off because he was under a vow. And biblically, we can infer pretty accurately that the vow that Paul had taken was what was known as a Nazarite vow which is recorded in the Old Testament book of Numbers, and that several people throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament took this vow. It was a, the Nazarite vow was a, a special kind of customary way that God prescribed for Jewish people to be able to voluntarily express their devotion to God. It's laid out in Numbers chapter 6, and in that chapter, the Lord specified as the people were making their way through the wilderness towards the promised land, He specified the details of this special vow that His people could take, which included, among other things, abstaining for the duration of the period of the vow, abstaining from drinking wine and abstaining from cutting their hair or shaving during the duration of the vow. It's called a Nazarite vow because the Hebrew word Nazir means to be separated from the rest, to be consecrated, to be marked out for special devotion. And this was a way for the people of God to signify that. 
by, that, they were, that they were devoting themselves to the service and the worship of God in a special way by not partaking of earthly pleasures for a time like wine and by not attending to mundane, everyday kinds of concerns like, like shaving and like haircuts. That in this way, visibly even, they indicated that they were being singularly devoted to the service and the worship of the Most High God. And then at the end of the period of time during which someone had partaken of this Nazarite vow, number 6 and verse 17 says this, they would take and shave their heads completely. So however long they took the vow, their hair would grow, and then they'd shave it completely off, totally bald, take all of that hair then to the tabernacle or to the temple and offer it up to God as a burnt offering of personal sacrifice on the altar. And the Old Testament scriptures record for us several people who did this, who took this special vow of devotion to God. Samuel took this vow in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember Samson took this vow in the book of Judges, and that's why he could not cut his hair. And God honored that by giving him that great strength as he remained devoted to God and did not touch his hair for a long, long time until Delilah cut it. And a group of people called the Rechabites in Jeremiah chapter 35 all took this vow during the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, devoting themselves to prayer and to worship and to crying out for God's mercy. And John the Baptist, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us, took this vow also. And so here, having come to the conclusion of this particular season of ministry, this particular missionary journey to bring the gospel to Macedonia, Paul, as he's preparing to head home, before departing from Corinth, before getting on the boat to go home, he's at the end of the missionary journey, and he has his head shaved. Because see, at the beginning of the journey, he had taken this Nazarite vow, and he was planning to to take his hair and bring it back to Jerusalem. Now, as you're thinking about that, all of this probably brings up a question in your minds. And the question is this, what is Paul doing? He's a Jewish person, but now he's a a believer in Jesus. He's a new covenant apostle who has forsaken so much of the old covenant ritual and ceremony that has been fulfilled in Jesus. What is he doing taking this vow? Right? I mean, haven't all of the old ceremonial ways been made obsolete and done away with, like all of the animal sacrifices in the temple? Didn't Paul in the book of Galatians refuse to have Titus, who was a Jewish man, refuse to have him circumcised? Because the Jews were demanding that he be circumcised according to the law. But Paul recognized that in the New Covenant, physical circumcision is no longer circumcision is no longer required. Didn't God show Peter that vision in Acts chapter 10 of all of the animals that used to be in the Old Covenant considered to be unclean? You couldn't touch them, you couldn't eat them. But now they all came down on that sheet and God said, Do not call unclean what I have made clean. Hasn't it all been fulfilled in Christ? And if all of that's true, then why is Paul now observing this this old covenant vow, right? Well, here's why. Of course it is true that Jesus has fulfilled so much of what the Old Testament ceremonies required. Now that he has made a perfect sacrifice for sin, no more animal sacrifices need to be made or should ever be made. Because to do that would undermine his once-for-all sacrifice and its sufficiency. Now that a better circumcision that has been made without hands has come in Christ cleansing human hearts, the old rite that just signified that which is to come has been done away with. It's no longer required. And now we must no longer declare unclean any foods that God has declared to be clean. And yet... At the same time, don't forget that at certain times during his ministry of the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul chose, didn't he, 
to abstain from certain foods for a very good reason. And don't forget from our study in the book of Acts itself that back in chapter 16 when Paul first met Timothy, whose mother was Jewish, but remember his father was a Gentile, and so he hadn't been circumcised, that Paul had Timothy be circumcised so that together they could go and minister the gospel to the Jews. Why? If circumcision is no longer necessary, why did Paul urge Timothy to be circumcised? You remember? It was because they were both so devoted to the ministry of preaching the gospel, primarily at that point to unbelieving Jewish people, that they didn't want there to be any stumbling blocks Anything that could be perceived as the Jews as a comp- by the Jews as a compromise or as an offense that would keep them from being able to hear the gospel that Paul and Timothy preached. If Timothy was uncircumcised, if that would be a, a stumbling block to the gospel, they'd rather remove it. Timothy would rather go through an uncomfortable and painful procedure than insist on his own rights. And his own freedoms to not have to undergo that procedure, he'd rather make that sacrifice than risk providing a stumbling block for the gospel to make inroads into the Jewish community. And even though Paul knew that now in Christ he had the freedom to eat all kinds of foods that were forbidden before, like pork, right? Foods that unbelieving Jews still wouldn't eat. Paul knew he had the freedom, but he would rather let go of that freedom, he says in the book of 1 Corinthians. If eating pork in the presence of a Jewish person would cause them to be offended or become an obstacle to the work of the gospel in their lives. I'd rather never eat pork again, Paul says. It's really good. I like it a lot. Hadn't had it all growing up, but now, wow, bacon's awesome. But I'd rather not eat it ever again if it would mean the gospel was more successful. So all throughout Paul's ministry as an apostle, we see this principle always at work in his life, that his devotion to God and his devotion to the gospel translated into a self-sacrificing love that compelled him very often to give up his own freedoms and his own liberties instead of insisting on them. And that he did that for the sake of others, out of love for others, out of an urgent desire to remove any hindrances to their hearing and receiving the gospel. And that's the same principle that's at work here. The Nazarite vow in the Old Testament was always a a voluntary vow. It wasn't compulsory. It wasn't required. It was a voluntary way for someone to visibly express their singular devotion to God. And so Paul, he's not placing himself back under the yoke or the burden of any Old Testament ceremonial law that has been abrogated now or or abolished now in the New Covenant. He was free to participate in this long-held customary way that Jewish people express their devotion to God. And also, which is the main point here, Paul knew he'd be returning to Jerusalem soon. And the last time he was in Jerusalem, you remember there was still a lot of sensitivity among the Jewish followers of Jesus, the the ethnic Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ. There was a lot of sensitivity about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. What they just, look, we've spent our whole lives observing the law of God and being holy and, 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 and living according to His Word. But these, these people are pagans. They don't know anything about the law of God. They've, they've been living in idolatry and immorality. All of those, and We're just going to let them in without having to be circumcised, without having to do anything, just through faith alone? And the apostles all got together and deliberated and said in Acts chapter 15, yep, just by faith alone. Just by faith alone. Remember, but there's... There's all this sensitivity to the inclusion of the Gentiles. And the last time Paul was in Jerusalem, he encountered that. And so see, now this is a way for Paul to demonstrate to his beloved Jewish 
brothers back in Jerusalem. Not that he's still committed to the Old Testament sacrificial system or bound to the ceremonial law anymore, but that he's out here preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews and the Gentiles, that he remained faithfully and singularly devoted to the God that they all loved and worshipped. It's very, very possible that Paul, and likely that he took this Nazarite vow when he left on this missionary journey two years before, that he hasn't touched his face or his head for that long. So that now, as he shaves it all off and returns to Jerusalem, he's going to have a pile of hair to present there. See, as a visible sign, as a visible signal, that they'll just understand that as he's labored to bring the gospel into the Gentile world, his devotion to God has not wavered one bit. That everything he's done, everything he's endured, has been because of an unflagging devotion to the God of heaven. That's what's on display here. Paul's heart is what's on display here. Because he's demonstrating that, his singular devotion to God, as well as his kind of gentle love for the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem who are still trying to come to terms with the inclusion of the Gentiles. See, it's tempting for Christians a lot of times who know that they have a certain freedom that they can enjoy in their lives, and then they have a a brother or sister in Christ who's, who's sensitive about that freedom and isn't sure if that should be a freedom, and their conscience is smitten by that. It's tempting sometimes for the Christian who's aware of the freedom to kind of flaunt it in the face of the more sensitive one. Or or even to want to rebuke them. But Paul's not like that. Paul's gentle. Well, people who are like that and just want to flaunt it and just they do that because they're all about themselves, right? It's always because their greatest priority is not other people. It's themselves. It's their rights that they're most concerned with. That's what their greatest devotion is to, their own freedom. The expression of their own desires more than they are devoted to the service of God or the love of others. So Paul's simple example here and everywhere else, all throughout the New Testament where he talks about laying his own rights aside, considering the needs of others more important than his own, Philippians 2. Never eating pork again, not causing offense, not causing a stumbling block, respecting the differing consciences of others, right? 1 Corinthians and Romans 14 and other places, depriving himself of things, himself of things that he knew he was free to enjoy. All of that is what's on display here, and it's critically important to us as we strive in this dark world full of evil days to be careful about how we walk and to make the best use of our time. The underlying question is, what are we most devoted to? What's most important to us? Is it us? Or is it others and ultimately devotion to God and His glory and His kingdom and the gospel? In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 and 20, Paul said these words. He said, although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all in order that I might win more of them. This is what he was doing in Acts 18. To the Jews, he says, I became as a Jew. I did things in a way that took their sensitivities into consideration, like taking this vow, like abstaining from pork while I'm preaching to them, in order that I might win more Jews for Christ Jesus. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being actually myself under the law, in order that I might win those who are under the law. The point is, it was never about me. 
It was never about my rights. I laid all of that aside. My devotion was not to myself or the pursuit of my own desires and the freedoms that I now know in Christ I have in this world. If I have to give them up for people to get saved, then I will gladly do that because I am devoted to God, not me, to the gospel, not my own freedoms. And so he very often throughout the New Testament calls himself a what? A doulos in Greek. A bond servant of Jesus Christ. Not all about my freedom. I have this freedom, but my goal isn't the exercise of the freedom. I have made myself a servant to Christ and a servant to everybody else. That's the kind of devotion that marks people who make wise use of the time that God has given us in this world. That's how Paul saw himself. That's how Paul defined himself. Instead of as someone who, having been given great freedom, was now all about his own rights to use those freedoms in whatever way he wanted. And there are all kinds of things, aren't there, that God gives us freedom to enjoy in this life. Doesn't mean you can never enjoy them. There are all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't forbid us from doing. There are all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't command for us to do or not to do that are left up to our consciences, aren't they? And at the same time, all throughout the New Testament, Paul's example, Paul's instruction, which comes from the example of Jesus himself, is that those freedoms always have to be governed by conscience. And conscience always has to be devoted to God and not to self. And everything we do has to be governed by a love for others that would rather lay down its own rights if it means blessing someone else, especially if that blessing meant the effective ministry of the gospel in their lives and and the eternal ramifications that that might have upon their everlasting soul. And so that's Paul's great example always. It's simply this, that Paul is not the priority for Paul. His rights, his desires, his freedoms... His pleasures, that's never what he is mostly devoted to in his life. Everything that he does comes from being devoted to God as a bond servant first. And then secondly, being constrained by a love for others. And then what he gets to enjoy and whether or not he gets to enjoy it is a a distant concern in his mind and his heart. And those two aspects of of his life are critical for us to all come to terms with if we're going to be careful about how we walk in this world, if we're going to be able to make the best use of our time in this world. We can't be all about us. Here in this world, the days are evil. And Satan is roaming around seeking to devour all kinds of people like a roaring lion. Don't waste your days in this world in selfish fleshly indulgence, spend every day in careful devotion to God and seeking the best way to love and to bless others, even if that means sacrificing something yourself. And that leads to a second aspect of Paul's devotion in these verses. Notice he, he sets sail with Aquila and Priscilla. He heads across from the eastern port of Corinth in order to make his way back towards Syria. And verse 19 says, They come to the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, in what's modern-day Turkey. And once again, Paul heads straight for the Jewish synagogue in order to reason, in order to dialogue with the Jews there about Jesus being the true Messiah, about the gospel. And there in Ephesus, things seem to go well unlike how they went when he went into the synagogue and preached in other places, right? In so many other places where he preached, there was, there was massive opposition. He was being reviled. He was being persecuted. They were, they were raising up citywide riots. They were traveling dozens and sometimes hundreds of miles to follow him to other cities to try to persecute him. But that's not what happens here in Ephesus, is, is it? They don't come to stone him. They don't revile him. They don't appeal to secular civil authorities to try to shut Paul up. In Ephesus, it seems like they're listening. They're hearing him. It it even seems like they appreciate what he's saying. They're open to it. So much so that they ask him to stay longer. 
verse 20 says. That's pretty good, right? I mean, after everything Paul's been through in other places, that's got to feel pretty good to him, right? Pretty affirming to him. He's so used to walking into a synagogue and and opening up his mouth and just flinching and and here comes the opposition. Here comes the jealous anger that's going to boil up and boil over and the insults are going to start to fly and the rocks might start coming at my head. But here they're listening. They're asking him to stay. They want to hear more. Well, I'll tell you what that would make me want to do. I'm I'm done traveling. I'm just going to stay here. Maybe indefinitely. They, they appreciate me here. They appreciate what I'm trying to do here. Well, remember, Paul's not all about Paul. So what does he do? When they ask him to stay longer, what does he do? He declines, verse 20 says. I mean, is he crazy? What's wrong with him? Is he foolish? I mean, doesn't it seem like we, we might well conclude that since the people in Ephesus are being receptive to the gospel, that it, it would be a good idea to stay and keep on preaching and watch that fruitfulness be born? I mean, I, again, it'd be pretty easy for me to conclude that, but Paul didn't. And the simple reason why he didn't is just spelled out in verse 21 where he says, On taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills it. And then he set sail from Ephesus. If God wills, I'll come back. See, we're not told how, we don't know why, but Paul has prior to this come to the conviction in his conscience that the will of God for him at this time is to go back home. And Ephesus was just a stopover. And so he says, I can't stay much as I'd like to because I feel, I feel really affirmed and I feel really good about this season of fruitful ministry, but, but I can't because it's not about me and it's not about my will and it's not about your will for me to stay. It's about God's will and God wills for me to go home. And if He wills, I'll come back someday. Again, Luke doesn't spell out for us the process by which Paul comes to the conclusion about God's will for him to go home. That's not the main point here. The main point here is everything that Paul did and didn't do was in devotion to God and in devotion not to the will of other people, not to his own will, but to the will of God. And how well can we say that? about the way that we walk through our lives in this world and about how we make use of the time that God gives us in this world, what we spend most of our days doing in this world. How well can we even say that in determining God's will, we can say, I I always want to do what God's will is, but then don't we so often become tempted to let our desires play a pretty major role in discerning the will of God? Well, it's, it's what I really want, so God must want it for me, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to convince ourselves that the things that are pleasant for us and feel good to us and that correspond with our own desires, that those things are the biggest indicators of God's will for our lives. It could have been really easy for Paul to succumb to that kind of temptation, right? I mean, they like me here. They appreciate my preaching here. They want me to stay. This feels good. This must be God's will. And it's not that God doesn't give us those blessings sometime. Give us confirmations and affirmations by way of appreciation to help us know whether or not we're on the right track. Sometimes He works that way. But the point here is that for Paul, making the best use of his time in this world meant being so devoted to God that his own feelings and his own desires came way, way, way down the list of priorities, of factors by which he discerned the will of God for his life and his choices. You remember George Mueller? I try not to even listen to my feelings when I'm discerning the will of God because they so often can lead me astray because they're all mixed in with the passions of this world and the passions of my sinful flesh. God's Word is a better guide. The Holy Spirit is a better guide. The counsel of others is a better guide. The providence of God is a better guide. So for Paul, same thing. His own feelings comes way down the list. 
And if what felt good for Paul factored in at all, it certainly wasn't anywhere near the top of that list, right? For Paul, whether he was going to be met with success or failure, that didn't determine what God's will was for him. You remember when he got stoned outside of Lystra and Derby, and they left him for dead? And then he got up and said, what's God's will? Another week in that city where they hate me and tried to kill me. Whether his preaching would be accepted or rejected, whether it would lead to conversions or to his own condemnation, that didn't factor into Paul's decisions about where to go and what to do and when to do it. Whether he would witness salvation or endure stonings, he was committed not to doing what was pleasant for him, but to doing what pleases God. Not to his own will, but to the will of God. Even if that meant leaving a place or a group of people during a time of fruitfulness in his ministry. Again, Luke doesn't spell out for us how Paul came to this conclusion that it was God's will for him to leave Ephesus and press on towards Syria. The main point is, Paul was singularly devoted to the will of God in everything that he did, even when it meant giving up pleasant circumstances and enduring unpleasant ones. And if we're going to be careful about how we walk in this world, if we're going to make the best use of the time that God has ordained for us in these evil days, that's got to be the main point for our lives also. A singularly singular devotion to serving God and walking according to His will in spite of the cost that that might mean for us. And of course, that's going to mean different things for different people, isn't it? Our lives will look differently from one another's as we each pursue God's will and not our own in various ways in our lives because God wills different things for all of us and in various ways. He's given us different gifts to use. He's given us different callings to pursue. He's laid out different providences to help guide our steps. And the key for all of us isn't to do what Paul did, but to have this same devotion that Paul had so that our own desires and our own ambitions shouldn't be, mustn't be the priority and the primary factors in determining God's will as we seek to redeem the time that we spend in this world. Can't be all about us and what we want. You remember a couple weeks ago when we were back up in Acts chapter 16 and it was very clear that God was was guiding Paul against Paul's own will. Paul wanted to go up to Bithynia. Paul wanted to stop at every town along the way in Asia. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. He was prevented somehow from even going into Bithynia or from stopping in Asia until he got all the way out to the port where God said in a vision, you got to go to Macedonia. You remember that? And we talked about God's will and we talked about George Mueller's simple little paradigm for discerning God's will in your life. Mostly it's focused on gleaning wisdom from the Word of God as a trustworthy guide and framing up our thinking and decision making according to the wisdom of God and His Word along with long seasons of prayer in connection with the Word of God and also receiving good counsel from other people and taking account of the providences that God has, has given for our lives and orchestrated in our lives. You remember, the very first thing that Mueller said was this. When I'm trying to know God's will about any certain matter, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has not will of its own in regard to a given matter. That it's really God's will that I want and not just what I want. And nine-tenths of the difficulties that I have in discerning God's will are overcome when my heart is ready to do the Lord's will, whatever that may be. When someone is truly in that state, it's usually but a very little way to coming to a knowledge of what the will of the Lord is. And that's what Paul is demonstrating here. That's what we see evidenced in his life. The personally rewarding experience of an unusually sweet and fruitful season of ministry was something that he willed, something that he could thank God for, 
but it didn't actually factor in in any major primary way to how he discerned God's will for him. And so he said, look, as, much, as, as nice as this is, as much as I'm enjoying this time with you, I have to go. Because God wills it. And if God wills, I'll come back. Pray for that same selfless devotion to God and to the will of God during the time that he has ordained for you to be in this world. Because you don't know how long it is. You don't know how many days God has written in the book for you to live in this world. You don't know when Christ will return. You don't know when he could pluck you out. Your life is not your own. It's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's about His will. It's about being devoted to His purposes. It's about seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness and then trusting Him to to provide whatever worldly comforts or needs we have. There's a story my grandmother used to tell about a family living in the Great Depression. The father had grown up himself as a boy in a home where at the dinner table his father served himself first. He piled his plate with as much as he wanted and then the kids got the leftovers which was often not much, scraps. So this man having grown up that way when, when he grew up, when he became a father And when the Great Depression hit his own house and family, he made a habit every meal of being the last one to fill his plate, of giving whatever food there was to his kids first, and then taking for himself whatever scraps were left over. And when there was very, very little, one little piece of meat, often he would just cut it and give it to the kids. How do we live our lives? Are are we just piling our own plates high and then giving God the scraps? And then claiming that's what it looks like to seek first the kingdom? Because we've, we've tithed a little bit of our time and our lives to God while keeping most of it for ourselves? Or are we devoted whatever the cost? It won't always look like Paul. But are we devoted, whatever the cost, whatever the calling, whatever the profession, whatever the circumstance that God has ordained for you, are we devoted, whatever the cost, to our God, to His purposes, to His will, as we make the best use of our time during these evil days? Now, one last point today from this passage as we think about that and consider how to walk carefully and make the best use of the time. It means being singularly devoted to God. It means being ultimately devoted to God's will and not first and foremost our own. And that means, in order to do that, cultivating a heart of deep-seated humility that pours contempt on all our pride and is ready to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the foundation of it all, right? And that's what I see exemplified in the remaining verses of Acts 18 in the, in the life of this, this Christian man in Ephesus named Apollos. Again, easy to just read over these verses, but I read it and I go, what if I was in Apollos' shoes? Verse 21, following the will of God and not his own ambitions, Paul says goodbye to the people of Ephesus. And he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. Paul gets on the boat, sets sail for Caesarea. That's on the coast of Israel. When he gets to Caesarea, notice it says, he goes up to greet the church. Remember, we talked about this way back in our study of the book of Acts. Because of the topography of Israel, as well as the significance of of going to the temple in Jerusalem and the symbolism of ascending to the hill of the Lord, going up in Israel, always means that wherever you're coming from, you're climbing up into the hill country of Judah in order to ascend to the hill of the Lord in Jerusalem. So when Luke says, Paul went up from Caesarea to greet the church, what he means is that Paul went to Jerusalem to greet the brothers and the sisters in Jesus Christ there and to tell them all about everything God had been doing in bringing the gospel throughout the empire. Then he goes back down, it says... 
not south like on our maps, but, but down out of the hill country to Antioch, which happens to be in the north of Jerusalem, where the gospel had first come, remember, to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. So that's what Paul's doing. Meanwhile, back in Ephesus, verse 23, there's this guy, verse 24, excuse me, named Apollos. And Apollos, Luke tells us, is a native of the city of Alexandria. That's sort of like saying he grew up in Cambridge or Oxford. Alexandria is a major city in Egypt which is most well known for being a center of education and scholarship and philosophy in the world. The great library of Alexandria was was before it was burned far and away the greatest repository of knowledge and learning from all around the world at the time. Alexander the Great had had collected all kinds of stuff from all over the world and and built this, this center of learning there. Again, Alexandria was very much like uh, an ancient Oxford, an ancient Cambridge, almost synonymous with education and erudition and higher learning in Paul's day. And that's why Luke makes this point of telling us that there's this Jewish man named Apollos who comes from Alexandria. He's a smart dude. He's a well-educated guy. That's why he he says in verse 24, he was eloquent. That word means well-educated, erudite, well-spoken. And part of his learning had been in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he was competent in his knowledge of the Scriptures. That means he was strong in his understanding of the Old Testament Word of God and in his ability to, to explain it, to teach it. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25 said. He understood how all of the things of the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And he was fervent in spirit, it says. So picture this guy. He's a well-educated, very well-spoken, passionate, charismatic guy. He's exactly the kind of guy that everybody loves to listen to. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, it says. Here's a guy who gets that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Here's a guy who understands that all that God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures is is fulfilled in Christ. And so he's going now into the synagogue in Paul's wake there in Ephesus. And he's speaking boldly and eloquently about God's word and about Christ and about the gospel. And that's wonderful, isn't it? It is, but for all of his learning and education and understanding and erudition, Apollos had some holes in his theology. He knew only the baptism of John, Luke says in verse 25. He didn't fully understand the greater baptism of Jesus, the one who John the Baptist was just a forerunner of and said, I'm not even worried to untie his sandals. So picture this now. Here's this guy. I mean, again, <laughs> if it were me to confess to you, I'd be, I'd be pretty impressed with myself if I was Apollos. Verse 26, Aquila and Priscilla, the blue-collar tent makers, exactly, heard Apollos' teaching and then took him aside and explained to him the ways of God more accurately. Now, first of all, notice their care and sensitivity not to even inadvertently humiliate Apollos in public and not certainly to take the opportunity to make themselves look great. We know something that, that even this guy doesn't know. Our understanding is better and puff themselves up by publicly refuting the well-educated, eloquent man from Alexandria because they're not about themselves, right? They've poured contempt on all their pride. 
Their goal isn't the esteem of others or their own reputation or their own pride or what people think of them. Their goal is just the gospel. And so they recognized Apollos is a powerful weapon in the Holy Spirit's arsenal. He just needs a little bit of sharpening and we can take him aside and help and he'll be even more effective and nobody might ever know about it. They recognized for the sake of the gospel, it would be even better if Apollos' theology got cleaned up. So humbly, lovingly, sensitively, gently, quietly, they took him aside. Not to shame him, not to one-up him, but to help him be even more able to use his gifts for the cause of the gospel. And Apollos, the well-educated, learned, eloquent teacher from Alexandria, didn't chafe at their help, did he? He wasn't defensive. He didn't look down his nose and go, who are you? He didn't rebuff them. He didn't wave them off. He didn't act like he had no need of help and understanding things from people like them, from from blue-collar people. See, there's... Here's the point. Not only to cultivate this kind of humility in our own hearts, but to recognize in this world where the days are evil, and evil often results in injustice and oppression and classism and prejudice. There is no room for prejudice. There is no room for superiority in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, lowered himself, took the form of a servant. He's the one who stooped down at his own disciples' feet and washed their dirty, muddy feet like the household servant would do. He's the one who epitomizes self-abasing, self-sacrificing love even as he allows himself to be killed on a cross. There's no room for prejudice. There's no room for superiority. There's no room for thinking you're better than someone else because of any kind of factor in your life. Apollos and all of his giftedness, all of his education, got it. He understood that. He understood that the heart of the gospel is that the eternal glorious God humbled himself and gave himself up as a suffering servant in order to seek and save lost people like Apollos. So Apollos has no instinct to say, I don't have anything to learn from you. I don't have anything to gain from you. And that's how we need to be also. The eternal glorious God humbled himself and gave himself up for me. For you, for all of us. There's no room for pride in the kingdom. There's no room for posturing. There's no room for superiority. Why is it that so often Christians are the most arrogant ones? What do we have to be arrogant about when Jesus Christ died for us? Why is it that people who who proclaim the, the doctrines of grace so often have so little of it in their own lives as they treat other people. There's no room for looking down our noses arrogantly on one another or or for that sanctimonious spirit that acts like we're better than someone else because we know more, because we understand better, because we got more books on our shelves or better books than your books or different gifts than someone else. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became blue collar. He became the lowest servant by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the, that's, the, that's the humility that Apollos evidenced, which is what enabled him by God's grace and by God's gifting to be a powerful weapon for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he didn't take credit for the power of God in him. He didn't, he didn't take credit for the gifts that God had given him because it wasn't about him. Because like Paul, before him, Apollos lived for the glory and the pleasure and the will 
of the Most High God who saves. So we're out of time again. But today I hope that these verses here in God's living and active word will, will, will convict us all to cultivate this mind of Christ that is ours in Him and, and to cultivate this humility of our self-sacrificing Savior and to be singularly devoted to our God and to His will and to not, not to our own as we walk through this life and as we strive to make the best use of every day that God has ordained for us to live here. Because we're only here because He's ordained for us to be here and we're only here for as long as He's ordained for us to be here. It's only by His will that we're here, so it should only be by His will and for His will that we live while we're here as we seek His kingdom and His righteousness during these dark days. So let's pray together as we prepare and sing His praises to go back out into this world this week and make the best use of our time. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for Your Word. Again, we acknowledge it is breathed out by You, inspired by Your Holy Spirit who moved these men like Luke along to record what they recorded such that none of it is just incidental, none of it is just storytelling. None of it is myth, none of it is fable, all of it is a a God-inspired record of what you did in history in order to work through your people to glorify yourself and build your church. God, we admit that we look around this world and we see the darkness and we see the evil and it's tempting for us to become consumed with our own desires and the things that will make us feel safe and comfortable and at ease. We ask, God, that you would focus us on your will. Help us to see the gifts that you've given each one of us and help us to ask in what ways can we use those gifts that bring God the most glory in our lives. Forget the cost. What glorifies and pleases God? How can I be used during these dark days and as he continues the work of the kingdom through me? So Father, continue to transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. Fill us with grace, fill us with glory as we are those earthenware vessels, God, that you have poured this great treasure in. We pray, pour it back out of us and into this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.